Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West, medical oncologist with a particular focus on thoracic oncology at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Sanjay Mukhopadhyay, Director of Pulmonary Pathology at the Cleveland Clinic. He's a lung-dedicated pathologist at the Cleveland Clinic who is well-respected globally for his pioneering efforts in developing online educational content as videos, Twitter threads, and other tools to advance our learning in thoracic diseases. Sanjay, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's always a pleasure. Excellent. So you have a particular focus on pulmonary pathology, and you do a remarkable job using social media platforms for education. How common is it, and how important do you think it is to have a pathologist with a strong focus on pulmonology and pulmonary pathology, particularly outside of tertiary care centers? Is that a realistic expectation and necessity? Uh, Very good question. It's actually a pretty complicated question because it sort of gets into this point of tertiary versus sort of community settings. So to address it from the community point of view, I really do not think that it is realistic for most small community practices to have a specialized pulmonary pathologist. And I'll tell you why. So if you if you imagine a small community practice and maybe they would have you know six, seven, maybe 10 pathologists in their practice. Some of them have even less, maybe three or four. And in a practice that's mostly has to do with GI specimens, you know, colon biopsies, esophageal biopsies, gallbladders, and other, you know, relatively simple specimens, placentas, uteruses, so GYN pathology, gynecologic pathology. That's really the bread and butter of most pathology, small community pathology practices. And lung is very uncommon as a specimen in those practices. So to have a person who just does lung and doesn't do anything else is is just impractical. It doesn't happen. In the bigger practices where you might have, you know, 20, 25 pathologists, maybe, maybe even 10 pathologists, there it might help to have a pulmonary pathologist. But again, the volumes are just too low for lung to justify a lung-only person. So now if you flip it to tertiary care centers, you it'd be interesting for you to know, Jack, that even in the big tertiary care institutions, there are virtually no institutions where people do lung only. So ours, Cleveland Clinic, we have three lung only pulmonary pathologists, which is an absolute luxury. It's as if you went to, you know, Ford, and there were three guys that were making only a convertible with the with the top off. You know, it's like you you would, you had, you have to be in a big place to have that kind of a subspecialized practice. If you go to other big practices, very, very big institutions at tertiary care people, even there people don't do only lung. So they do lung and head and neck, lung and GI, lung and cytology. So there's always something else to justify the hiring of a person because lung volumes in general are so low. So that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that just pulmonary pathology fellowships are just so uncommon so few in this country, you know, there's just a handful of them. You know, I can count them really on one hand, the established pulmonary pathology 
fellowship. So there just aren't that many people training fellowship trained pathologists. So, so both ways you look at it, it's just not practical to have uh, pulmonary only people except in the most heavily subspecialized large academic practices. Of course, molecular testing and molecular diagnostics have exploded, making it challenging for oncologists, at least, to keep up with the pace of progress. I would imagine that a lot of that is the case among pathologists as well. So how well is the pathology community keeping up with all these developments? And how much or little of a problem is that getting the latest information out very broadly? It is a problem, Jack. You, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's difficult even for you guys to, to keep up with the, all the clinical trial data and how that will change things for people in practice. And I have to admit, for most pulmonary pathologists that I know, we are just not as much in tune with the clinical literature as you guys are, not nearly as much and not nearly as fast. So generally what happens is the way it works, at least in, in my experience, is that if you are, for example, you are the oncologist at my institution and you are the lung guy, you are the lung guru, it's generally you are the one who uh, sort of bears the responsibility of keeping in touch with the latest developments in the oncology literature. And then you drip that knowledge downwards to the other people in your group. So you would let then the pulmonary pathologist know or the radiologist know or the radiation oncologist know, all those people get to know through you what is the most important stuff going on. Now, ideally, of course, it shouldn't be like that, right? Everybody should be keeping, uh, but there's just too much, too much, Jack. I mean, you're talking of mostly the oncology literature, but then there's the pathology literature, there's the radiology literature, there's a different radiation oncology literature, we are, and we're busy keeping up with our own literature, which impacts our practice. So I think in practice, what happens is that we are always behind at least the, the most breaking news. So, you know, if something broke in, the, uh, in a big lung cancer conference, chances are most pathologists don't know about that. Uh, and it will drip down one level by one level. So it will drip down from you to the lung pathologist. The, the lung pathologist will drip it down further to the other pathologist in the department. And by the time something becomes established wisdom, uh, I'm only exaggerating a little bit, but by the time something becomes established, it's probably outdated by the time everybody knows about it. So that's how it goes, I think, in, in practice. Now, you mentioned that uh, the volumes of pulmonary-specific pathology are not high enough to expect there to be specialists in the far corners of the rank-and-file community. But even if that's desirable to have that level of knowledge available, does it need to be decentralized all over the place? Or is it possible, particularly maybe with pathology, if more than just about any other specialty, it may be possible to just tap into centralized expertise on demand where you need it and have more generalists out there in the broader communities? Uh, do you see digital case material being able to travel to the subspecialist rather than having to have a subspecialist in every corner? Yeah, Jack, to some extent, that's a very good question because that is to some extent what we're already trying to do in pathology and, and for many years we have done. So for example, if in a, in, let's say you're, there's somebody in, in California in your neck of the woods who has a, has a biopsy that they're looking at and they're just not sure if it's benign or malignant or how if there's a tumor, they don't know what kind of tumor it is or what stains to do or whether it's a carcinoma or a sarcoma. For many years, we've had a system in pathology where if that person wasn't comfortable, they could simply ship off the slides to the nearest expert or the best expert. 
which could be somebody in California or could be somebody at the Cleveland Clinic or Mayo or wherever their you know, favorite expert is, they could just simply ship the slides off and get a result within, within a week usually, you know, um, mm-hmm. sometimes even quicker. So that's been the standard system. Now, there are two other things that your question brings up is one is, could you do it in a digital era in a different way in the sense of scanning the slides at the point of origin and then sending the scanned images to the expert? And this is, of course, going to happen. It, it's, there's, there's no question about it. This is the way of the future. The question is how much down in the future? Because in the present time, there are just too many technical you know, roadblocks in the way of this happening in the current time. So, for example, most small community practices don't have a scanner. So the, just the point of entry, the, the fact of scanning all those slides is so expensive and, and so sort of it requires so much expertise and, and this combination of software and hardware and which it really boils down to cost. There's just so much cost involved in scanning these things and then storage of all that data that most places just don't have the facility to even uh, to even scan these slides. Now, people who do have scanners, so for example, Cleveland Clinic has scanners. We use it for education. We use it for teaching. You know, I can I can scan in a slide if I think it's interesting. But if we had to scan in all 200,000 of our cases, it would just make a huge logistical nightmare and it's just too expensive for even us to afford. So I think the cost of that has to drop. Technology has to improve. People have to get more access to it before that becomes a reality. But your point is well taken. I mean, that is the way of the future where the expert could be sitting in Singapore for, for all you know, and you could be sending your cases to them and getting an answer within hours from, from an expert. That is, that is truly the way of the future. Cool. Let's turn to the question of the utility of social media for medical education, obviously in your case, focusing on pathology. Can you talk a bit about what led you into this approach that you've been one of the biggest leaders in and how that's been going and the platforms that you have come to prefer? Yes. um, Thank you for bringing that up, Jack, because it's something that, you know, as I've been in this only for about I think four years, it's been about four years since I joined Twitter. And to be completely honest, the reason I I got onto it was because my book was coming out. I'd just written a a textbook all by myself. I was very proud of my work and I wanted people to hear about it. And I just wanted a platform to be able to put it out there and say, you know, here's my textbook and read it if if you like. So that's how I joined Twitter. And I had no idea what it was about. And I had no idea how much educational potential there was. So I'd say one of the People that sort of showed me the ropes is a pathologist named Jared Gardner. You know him well, I'm, I'm sure, Jack. He's one of the leaders in, in, you know, starting to do this much before I started. And uh, he sort of, I, I think, saw a lot of things that way before many of us saw it. He saw the, the reach, the speed, you know, the potential of, of doing this and had the uh, courage to try it when everybody else was worried about, you know, posting pathology images um, online. And he also tackled, you know, the, the early questions about ethics and the, the you know, sort of um, questions ab- around posting images on social media. And what I learned from him was there was an immense audience out there and there was an immense appetite for people to learn things and have access to, to experts. This was something I totally did not anticipate when I was going onto the platform. Like most people who joined, you know, my experience of social media was from Facebook 
And I thought that's where people post pictures of where they went on vacation and what they did with their cat. And, you know, just just the usual things that you do on, on social media. I had no idea of the, uh, you know, I, I didn't see this as as a platform, you know, as a, as a platform where you could literally blog your your thoughts, your your educational um, experiences. And the first thing I realized was the immense reach of this. I would post something and then the next morning, people from Spain and India, you know, from Brazil, from the Middle East had seen it and were commenting. It just blew me away. And, and of course, you can look at metrics when you're doing these things on, on Twitter. And I could see that, you know, it, it was reaching 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people. And I was it was it was incredible. So I started posting more and more. I started doing tutorials, much, much more complicated things. And once I started doing tutorials, I found that even clinicians were responding to this. Oncologists, surgeons would say, you know, oh, somebody has explained it now in a, in a form that I can understand. Um, and it, I just, uh, the more I saw, the more I, I kept on doing. And Jared um, taught me that you could then use Facebook. You could make a professional page on Facebook and post things there and reach a different audience. You could put it on YouTube and then use, you know, reach a, a fantastic audience there. Just as an example, Jack, uh, Jared actually reached out to me when COVID was just starting. This must have been uh, maybe in March, March of this year. And he said, look, I've put out a, a video there on YouTube just trying to explain to people this is real and please take it seriously. And of course, he has a massive following, so he reaches a lot of people. But he said, Sanjay, could you just put out something there on the pathology of this, you know, just what diffuse alveolar damage means? I said, look, Jared, we don't know for sure that this does cause diffuse alveolar damage, but I'm happy to explain what ARDS means. We knew that ARDS was involved. So I put out a video there. You know, I was literally on the floor of my, my kid's uh, playroom, you know, in front of a laptop. That's what I was doing it on. I was using my old teaching materials and literally laying down on the floor in front of a laptop with an old mic plugged in there, just the, the kind of, you know, headphone I'm using now. And I, and I put that thing out about ARDS and DAD and how that might be related to COVID. And that has a more than a 100,000 views on YouTube, Jack. You, I mean, it, it is incredible. It's incredible. It's just a question of there being a need and an audience and you're reaching the correct need and the correct audience at the right time, at which actually Jared is a, is a genius at that. But I'm, learn, you know, I'm learning the ropes from him, just how you can use these technologies to reach the people who want to learn these things. Do the pathologists who are following you generally aggregate in the same platforms like Twitter that are used by many clinicians, or are pathologists especially inclined to use more visual platforms like Instagram or Figure One as leading platforms for education? Are basically, are pathologists uh, going to the same places or are there very visual specific platforms that work best for you? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think I think the answer is both, Jack. I, I, they do go to some of the same places. So they are on Twitter and Facebook, for example, but they are also on um, platforms that are very visual, like Instagram, for example. There's quite a few pathologists on Instagram. I will say though that still I see Twitter as the sort of most conducive to pathologists posting an image and then talking about it or educating each other about it. Still, I, I prefer Twitter. Maybe it's a personal preference. And that's where I see the audience uh, congregating the most. I will say that there are a lot of 
specialty pathology Facebook pages. So there's like a, a pulmonary pathology Facebook page that Dr. Yale Rosen started. Um, there are uh, soft tissue, bone and soft tissue pages. There's a, a derm path, very, very popular derm path page that Jared runs and other people, Dr. Phil McKee run. So Facebook seems to be very popular too with the pathology community for some reason. Uh, it's not my favorite platform, but still there is a, there's a very vast audience that is on Facebook. I think mostly from, from India and other un, underserved places that you don't reach if, you, if you're um, using Twitter only. So I think there is a little bit of a difference. And in terms of your, your point about the visual, you know, the difference between how clinicians use Twitter versus how pathologists use Twitter, there's definitely a big difference in terms of how many images we use, you know, how we talk about images, how we post images, because that's our bread and butter. You know, that's what we do all day long. You know, you could have a pathologist saying, hey, look at this atypical mitosis. And uh, you can have 60 people immediately responding to that, which I think clinicians don't do. <laughs> you know, clinicians talk about, as far as I can see, about trials, about treatment, you know, about other things, you know, about life as a clinician, ethical things, uh, you know, uh, humorous things but they don't really revolve that much around imagery as, as much as uh, pathologists do. So you, you do have a point there. There's, there's something innately visual about our field that leads us to uh, use imagery in our, our social media communication. Are you seeing that your grassroots efforts, and you'd mentioned Dr. Jared Gardner's as well, beginning to gain credibility as academic endeavors? Uh, I, I basically mean, are you beginning to get recognized for these efforts in online teaching as if it were a grand rounds lecture, or is it seen by institutions, either for you or others you know, as more of a personal side hobby indulgence rather than with academic gravitas? Yeah, this is a tough question, Jack. This, this is very, very difficult. But you, could, you can answer it one of three ways, and I'm going to try all three, okay? So one way to say it is there is, there is actually increasing recognition in academics of social media activity. So I leave myself out of it because I don't think my work really <laughs> has been recognized or in that way at least, but I, do, I have seen people, especially Jared, and I know others, Kamran Mirza, for example, from Loyola, where I can directly link their academic uh, credentials. You know, so Jared, for example, is now um, deputy editor for the Archives of Pathology and Lab Medicine. I, and I think that was directly in relation to his social media work. Uh, Kamran Mirza is now, I think, vice chair, if I'm not mistaken, vice chair for education at Loyola. And that's also directly relating to, at least partially, his social media work. Both of them, I think, put their social media work on their CVs. For Jared, I know for sure, he puts it on his CV. He teaches others how to put it on their CV. And I know... Um, also, that as several of us are actually banding together to put together some kind of guidelines as to how to use social media in your academic work. You know, we have we've actually done a genuine academic work on social media. For example, Jack, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a thing called Ebus Twitter, hashtag Ebus Twitter. Mm -mm. And that hashtag, um, so I'll tell you this quick story because you, you'll find it amusing if, if, if nothing else. So maybe two or three years ago, there was a Spanish pathologist named Lara Pihuan, Dr. Lara Pihuan, who posted a case report that she had uh, published in, the, in, in a Spanish journal, archives of, uh, I, I forget the uh, exact name, it's in Spanish. 
not something that I would read because I don't read Spanish language journal. Like I couldn't, couldn't read a Spanish language journal. But she posted a picture of that showing a biopsy site change in a lymph node that had undergone EBUS before it, before uh, excision. And what she showed was that there was a piece of cartilage in the middle of the lymph node, em sort of embedded in the node. And I just didn't believe it. I, um, I couldn't believe that this was in any way related to the biopsy. I'd never seen it before. And I thought maybe that was an artifact, you know, things like that do happen as artifacts. And I ignored it. And then later, maybe a year later, I saw it in my own practice in, my, in one of my own cases. So post EBUS case with a piece of cartilage lodged inside the lymph node, which had uh, undergone mediastinoscopy. So I, I went back and I posted that image on Twitter and I said, look, I've seen the same thing that Lara saw before. Has anyone else seen it? Has it been reported? So it turns out other than her, nobody had reported it before and nobody had systematically studied whether you could push in a piece of a, a bronchial wall into an actual mediastinal lymph node just by doing EBUS. So we launched a study on Twitter, on Twitter, Jack, literally. We launched a study on Twitter asked for people to participate. So people participated from Memorial, from Harvard, from several places in Europe, from India. I think there were about 10 institutions and we grouped together maybe a, a 50 cases each of post EBUS cases. And we found that indeed everybody had cases like that. About 10% of their cases, cartilage was being pushed into a lymph node. We then presented this at a meeting, at a pathology meeting, and then we published it in a very good journal, American Journal of Surgical Pathology. It actually got published in a, one of the leading pathology journals. So we, we took it from a purely Twitter observation, you know, to a full-blown study, to a presentation, to a full-blown publication. I think that was the first time that that was done from beginning to end all on Twitter. So we showed that it can be done. You know, you can actually do genuine academic work on Twitter, in addition to all the educational work you do. So that's one, one part of the answer, you know, so yes, it, it is done. Now, the second part of the answer is that I have, uh, I've encountered the opposite, as I'm sure you have to, the opposite uh, sort of view. Uh, that's usually from more traditional people who say, no, this is just a waste of time, or this is just a side hobby, and this is not serious work, and so it doesn't uh, deserve academic recognition. So for for me, for example, I don't put it on my CV. I'm just, maybe I'm, it's a cowardly thing to do, but I'm just afraid of people saying that you're putting non-serious things on your CV. And I think that should change because now coming to the third part of my answer, because I see just the immense reach of the work I do um, since I have joined Twitter. You know, I, I did the same work before. I did a lot of credible academic work before I joined Twitter. It never got the degree of reach and recognition that I'm getting now. And you brought up grand rounds. So, you know, in a, I'm, I know this is not what you asked, but since I joined Twitter, you know, the amount of grand rounds that have been invited to national lectures that I've been asked to give has just exponentially increased since people kind of see me as the lung pathology guy. I would genuinely recommend being on Twitter to any academician, not just in pathology, but, but anywhere, if not anything, but but to boost your you know, your visibility, just the people know who you are and what you do. Well, you and I have shared a podium together uh, in a, you know, in a CME program that came about because we found each other through social media and that happens over and over again. So exactly. I, I think uh, social media and particularly the, the education that you're offering, which now really transcends space and is, has a global reach, 
the the whole purpose of the academic enterprise is to move the field forward and and uh it, it is an appropriate measure i would say of the influence you're having on the field so it's, it's great work that you're doing i think it's a wonderful example and i always enjoy talking with you thank you for taking the time today thank you so much jack it's always been a pleasure and i'm so grateful to you for always being so encouraging and positive thank you for listening to this podcast visit the news section on iaslc.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts and please like your favorite episodes on soundcloud and share them with your friends and colleagues